Welcome to Catching Curveballs. Join Dr. Moji, a psychology professor at the University of Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabade, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. As always, if you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at Catching Curveballs Podcast on Instagram. Both are always listed in the show notes in case you want to double check the spelling. In fact, make it easier on yourself and just go ahead and add that email to your contacts list and follow us on Instagram. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and coworkers to listen. The good news is that this will never be one of those podcasts where you're embarrassed to share it or even admit that you listen to it. All right, mom, how are things on your end? Things on my end are going well. I am so excited to share a recent read with our listeners today. This is one of Oprah Winfrey's books titled The Path Made Clear, Discovering Your Life's Direction and Purpose. As you, my daughter, have mentioned on a couple of episodes, I am a lover of quotes. And so you'll not be surprised to hear that I loved reading this book for this reason. Oprah's opening quote spoke to me in a special way, and I believe it will speak to and is very pertinent to our listeners too. This is the quote. There is no greater gift you can give or receive than to honor your calling. It's why you were born and how you become most truly alive. End of quote. I also like her play on words, and from the get-go, the mostly two-word phrases in the table of contents, which seem to be teasers that will interest the reader. These two-word phrases are the seeds, the roots, the whispers, the clouds, the map, the road, the climb, the give, the reward. And for each of these sections of the book, opera starts with pithy and relevant quotes and helps readers recognize important signposts as we engage in self-examination while setting out what we really need in order to attain life satisfaction and what life's various junctions on our way teaches us. My interpretation of this is that we learn a lot from curveballs that life throws our way. Another thing I like about the book is that Oprah shares her major life lessons and stories. She also shares some important knowledge and ideas of a wide array of familiar personalities like Marianne Williamson, Bishop D. Jakes, and Deepak Chopra as they attempted to fulfill their own life's purpose. Wow. 
Okay, it's official. We're now both a psychology and literature podcast, since once again, we have another book reference. I love it. Thanks for sharing that book recommendation and the synopsis. Oprah really knows how to start a book because that quote gives me chills, and I completely believe her that nothing else can surpass finding and honoring your life's calling. I haven't read this one in particular, but it definitely sounds as if I need to add it to my list ASAP. Oprah's autobiography was actually one of my earliest, I guess, adult books. And I don't remember exactly how old I was when I first read it, but I remember thinking, wait, am I allowed to read this? Will my parents see me and have a few questions? (laughs) Because there are some pretty mature themes in there. I guess I didn't think of it in those exact words, but I had this sense that maybe this wasn't meant for my age group which of course made me want to read it even more. And in the end, I was blown away by the story of this person that I saw on TV who seemed to have the perfect life, the perfect job, and just appear so unbelievably happy in spite of having had endured so much. And I feel as if I associate her with two important concepts I try to remember as I navigate the world. The first being that you never fully know anyone's story until you, well, know them and their story. As you interact with others throughout the day, you never know what that person has personally been through or what they're currently going through. It's why it's so critical to reserve your judgments and be mindful of how you're engaging with others, especially those you don't know very well. The second being that regardless of what obstacles you've faced in your life or the curveballs you're currently trying to swing at or catch, there really is an opportunity for better. Those challenges won't be the entirety of your life story, and you do have a chance to write other chapters with an alternate ending or even completely different theme. With that said, some of those book sections in your life autobiography will be rife with unease, distress, and our topic for today, worry. And listeners, we hope today's episode will help you better understand worry and methods to manage this feeling so that you have countless other chapters filled with more positive emotions. So mom, what exactly is worry? Before I answer your question, my daughter, I'd like to comment on both of your two important and guiding ideas as you go on your life's journey. Yes, remembering these, I believe, will make each and all of us more concerned, considerate, and compassionate human beings. So back to your question, what is worry? We can define and describe worry in several ways. Most often, it is defined as a state of anxiety or unease and uncertainty over real or probable problems. Worry refers to the thoughts, images, emotions, and actions of a negative nature in a repetitive uncontrollable manner that results from a proactive cognitive risk analysis made to avoid or solve anticipated potential threats and their potential consequences. By cognitive risk analysis, I mean thinking of and assessing the possibility of a particular adverse event. Worry has become synonymous to any kind of tensions or problems people may be facing in their daily lives. And since you brought up synonyms, it seems as if worry is commonly perceived as synonymous with anxiety. 
Even I use both indiscriminately from time to time. But from a psychologist's point of view, is this actually appropriate to do? Or are both separate, distinguishable entities? Good observation. Not only do people typically use the words worry and anxiety interchangeably, when using the word worry, they also use words such as concern, fear, and apprehension interchangeably. These states are, however, different psychologically. For example, the word worry has to do more with people's thoughts, whereas anxiety is more about how we feel in our bodies. Making the distinction between worry and anxiety or any of those other states is, however, more complicated. A researcher as far back as the 1950s and another in the 1980s compared worry with anxiety. The researcher in the 1980s, for instance, maintained that warriors are anxious individuals, whereas non-warriors are less anxious individuals. And argued that a certain amount of worry is constructive in much the same way that a minimal level of anxiety is constructive. Therefore, according to this researcher, worry and anxiety both relate to behavior in the same way, and there is no reason to add another word that is worry to our vocabulary because a technique that reduces anxiety would also reduce worry. Later, this researcher and others conceded that worry and anxiety are not the same, but that worry is the cognitive component of anxiety. Another psychologist in the late 1990s and another in the mid-1980s both argued that worry is a form of fear while another researcher argued that worry is a byproduct of anxiety. Also, one researcher in the late 1950s distinguished worry from fear and anxiety and maintained that worry is mainly an active cognitive process, while another researcher in the early 1980s defined worry as, quote, a process of the intellect, end of quote, and that worry is simply a problem-solving activity fraught with uncertainty. Finally, one researcher in the 1970s suggested that there is a similarity between worry and intrusive unwanted thoughts like relative uncontrollability, disturbing and repetitiveness of thoughts. Okay, that was far more dissent than I expected when I asked the question. It's clear, though, that for many decades, psychologists have found it important enough to explore the differences between the two. I guess in a way, it seems that all of those researchers would agree that worry and anxiety exist in the same solar system. 
Actually, wait, let me use an analogy I'm more familiar with because that's when I'll start receiving emails explaining my misuse of asteroids versus comets. Let's instead say that all of those researchers would agree that both worry and anxiety are part of the same overall human body, but it seems as if the majority of them believe anxiety is the brain and worry is your stomach. But then there seem to be a few outliers that believe anxiety would be your kidneys and worry is the urine or byproduct of your urinary system functioning. (laughs) You know, that analogy just didn't head in the direction I expected it to. So let me steer far away from it and pretend it never happened. I find it helpful that despite the variation in the definitions and features highlighted by many researchers, some have focused on characterizing their similarities, including, quite frankly, that both can be disturbing to experience. It also helps to hear that I can comfortably continue to use both worry and anxiety interchangeably because even the experts have yet to reach a consensus. And mom, I find it interesting when you explain the differing experiences of worry depending on the stage of life of an individual. Can you walk us through how worry might differ depending on this consideration? Okay, my daughter, let me try. Researchers have addressed several categories of worry, and these can differ based on whether a person is a young child, an adolescent, a young adult, or an older adult, and on the individual's situation or condition. Older people, for instance, may have worries about relationships with others, worries about healthcare-related issues, worries about aging and bodily impairment, and or about life stories and issues related to their worth. This can frequently contrast to the nature of worries someone who is younger or, for example, in college might have. In studying a college student sample, investigators identified five general categories of worry in this population. General worries financial-related concerns, significant others' well-being, academic concerns, social adequacy concerns. I can completely relate to having experienced shifts in what I worry about at different stages of life. Let's just say what I tend to worry about these days definitely differs to my college self, which drastically differs to my teen years and earlier. We'll revisit that a bit later, but for now and in general, what are the different types of worry that exist? In terms of the categories of worry, some researchers separate them into two types, normal and pathological. A normal warrior will engage in reflection with the goal of problem solving and mastering of traumas while a pathological warrior will engage in excessively and uncontrollable worries. A pathological warrior tends to have a type of anxiety disorder referred to as generalized anxiety disorder. Theorists have proposed several reasons for pathological worry. 
Reasons include that given by control mastery theorists, which explains it as, quote, distortions of normal reflexive thinking often caused by pathogenic beliefs that support interpersonal guilt and their unconscious aim is often self-punishment. Other researchers distinguish between state versus trait worry or anxiety. State anxiety or worry reveals the psychological and physiological short-lived reactions directly related to adverse situations in a specific moment. While trait anxiety or worry refers to a trait of personality that describes individual differences Related to a tendency to present state anxiety or the psychological and physiological short-lived reactions directly related to adverse situations in a specific moment. In addition, there can be categorizations based on the timing or duration of worry or anxiety. For example, chronic mild worry versus chronic severe anxiety versus recent onset anxiety. Sometimes, investigators focus on specific groups of people experiencing certain conditions. For example, those with chronic illnesses in particular settings. In this regard, some researchers have described three types of cancer worry. General cancer worry, worry about the particular cancer diagnosis, and worry about cancer test results. Studies in these settings have also investigated sociodemographic and health-related predictors for each type of cancer worry. It's always so fascinating to hear the different aspects researchers have focused on and the many categories that have been identified. And as if each isn't enough, the contextual variation that can be present, such as the example with cancer patients and the influence of demographic characteristics in predicting your likelihood of experiencing each form of worry, With all of this in mind, why do we actually worry at all? People worry for all sorts of reasons. In general, stressors such as an impending or anticipated illness, serious or otherwise of an individual or loved one, death in the family, move, finances, work, and so on, cause people to worry. Stress built up, too, can lead people to worry. A big event or a buildup of smaller stressful life situations may trigger excessive anxiety. For example, a major life change, work stress, or continued financial challenges. Biological, psychological, Social and cultural factors all appear to influence the development of chronic worrying. Personality, genetics, 
brain chemistry, environmental or situational factors, and so on are contributing factors. All is not lost, however, because worry calls our attention to things we should do, anticipate, or prevent. And it can motivate us to do something about these things and even contribute to our decision-making process. I appreciate that you provided that incredibly important detail because very often it's easy to completely ascribe normal worry or other similar feelings as being entirely problematic. And listeners, don't get me wrong, it definitely can be very bothersome and in some forms extremely detrimental to your well-being. But the human brain has evolved in such a way where if we're feeling it, it's likely there for a reason and more than likely a protective one. And when it comes to worry, my mom touches on a good point that it can help direct our attention to something or someone in particular and can motivate us to do something about whatever that thing or person is. I believe this is also one of those areas where it becomes extremely important to delineate between worry and anxiety because anxiety tends to yield the opposite. And to revisit what I'd mentioned before regarding the nature of my worries having changed over time, personally, what I worry about currently is far more motivational and problem-solving directed than it used to be. Granted, there are a few that fall outside of that whole productive arena and are purely fear-driven. Probably some of my more prominent worries are because I believe I spend an absurd amount of time worrying about my loved ones, and actually the level of that type of worry skyrocketed the moment my late brother was diagnosed with cancer. I'd say the day-to-day fear of losing a loved one had barely crossed my mind until then, so there's this clear before and after with family worries. There are times when if my mom or someone hasn't responded to a message, the before me would have thought, oh, it's likely she's just really busy or away from her phone, whereas the after me will start feeling a bit of distress as blocks of hours pass. And it can be tough to balance because in those moments, I try to intentionally force myself to rationalize the likely reasons for the momentary lack of response. But there will always be those pestering, God forbid, thoughts and worries followed by the breath of relief after she responds. It's completely like that for my family now, and it even controls how I respond to them or even the levels of risk I'm willing to take personally. So the before me would just go wherever without much thought, but the after me will send before and after messages to my loved ones to the effect of, hey, I'm in this particular place. I'll let you know once I've gotten home. What about you, mom? What would you say you tend to worry about most? Similar to you, my daughter, since the passing of your brother, I have found that I worry a lot about you and your younger brother. I think about your safety, your health, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic times. Beyond this, for quite a while now, I worry about our upcoming American presidential elections what the outcome will be, life after the elections. And what aggravates my worry about the elections is that, like religion, I don't like discussing politics. I don't want to hurt other people's feelings or have my feelings be hurt. And so I avoid uncomfortable but necessary discussions. And in terms of politics, I not only worry about the goings-on in America, I worry about the ongoing protests in Nigeria, my birthplace, and where I still have family and loved ones. 
And in a similar vein, I worry about the social conditions of vulnerable and disadvantaged Nigerians. On a more personal note, I worry about my old age. If I'd still be physically able to engage in all the sports I love doing. I worry about death too, especially with the successful funeral ceremonies for my 90-year-old father that recently took place in Nigeria. And so I worry about my two sisters, three brothers, and I being able to continue my father's and late mother's legacies. Aww. So the takeaway here is that we both worry, as I'm sure our listeners can completely relate to and do as well. Also, our worries are about things we have absolutely no control over. How then can we lessen how much we worry or at least ensure it doesn't take a toll on our ability to lead productive lives? We can use different techniques to overcome intrusive unwanted thoughts. As far back as the mid-1960s, a behavioral therapist had shown that people can reduce many worries when they realize these worries are unimportant and they learn mental discipline. He criticized techniques of controlling worry that teach the individual to distract their thoughts by turning their attention to something else. The effort of turning one's thoughts, according to him, is an acknowledgement of how awful the thought from which one is trying to escape. In this way, this therapist had criticized the thought-stopping technique used in the behavioral therapy literature to overcome obsessive thoughts. His technique is very much similar to the habituation training proposed by therapists in the early 1980s. And what does habituation training mean? In general, habituation training is one in which individuals are taught how their responses to stimuli or learned behavior, for example, worrying, can be decreased over time. Another approach in controlling intrusive thoughts is the stimulus control technique. Stimulus control technique is essentially a cognitively oriented technique to reduce the occurrence of intrusive thoughts. Okay, but are there self-help techniques that we can all try ourselves? Healthguide.org has a well-put-together list on ways to manage and limit the impact of one's worries. I truly believe this will be a valuable resource for our listeners, and so I will review each in detail rather than quickly glossing over them. The first technique is to create a daily, quote, worry period. Identify a spot in your house and a period to worry. For example, in your living room for, let's say, 30 minutes. During the day, write down your worries on a pad or on one of your digital devices, reminding yourself that you will revisit these worries later. Then go over your, quote, worry list during your worry period you will be surprised that you are more objective about what is bothering you and it will have less of a stranglehold. 
Our second approach is to challenge anxious thoughts, engage in a lot of avoidance as it relates to these thoughts, employ what I am calling the 10 avoids, avoid engaging in an all or nothing thinking. Things are not just black or white. There are middle grounds, gray areas. Avoid overgeneralization or drawing conclusions that are too broad because they exceed what one can logically conclude from the available information. Avoid focusing on the negatives only. Pay attention to the positives. Avoid coming up with reasons why positive events don't count. Avoid making negative interpretations without actual evidence. Avoid expecting the worst case scenario to happen. Avoid believing that the way you feel reflects reality. Avoid holding yourself to a strict list of what you should and shouldn't do. Avoid labeling yourself based on mistakes and perceived shortcomings. And finally, avoid assuming responsibility for things that are outside your control. All right. A list of 10 items is quite a lot to remember. So listeners, for that second approach, the way I would keep track of the list is to try to play both the plaintiff and the defendant by presenting the alternate considerations to your anxious thoughts versus just letting one side or one perspective dominate your thoughts. And to do this, remember to avoid the extremes, whether that's in the form of all or nothing thinking, overgeneralizations, worst case expectations, assigning all the blame to yourself, and then the other items that my mom listed that I can't remember at this exact moment. Overall, just remember to present both sides of the argument. Try not to do so out loud to yourself, you know, in public, but feel free to do that if you're comfortable or in a safe space too. That's your, <laughs> that's your decision to make. But overall, just remember to present both sides to yourself. It's only fair to do so. Well stated, my daughter. The third technique is then to distinguish between solvable and unsolvable worries. Problem solve. Engage in finding solutions to a problem instead of worrying. If the worry is solvable, start brainstorming. If the worry is not solvable, accept the uncertainty. Fourth. Interrupt the worry cycle. Get up and get moving. Take a yoga or tai chi class. Meditate. Practice progressive muscle relaxation. Try deep breathing. Fifth, talk about your worries. Build a strong support system. Know who to avoid when you are feeling anxious. Yes. There are people that one needs to avoid when one is feeling anxious. They make things worse than better for you. And the final sixth technique is to practice mindfulness. Acknowledge and observe your worries. 
let your worries go. Stay focused on the present. Repeat daily. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing those. To give our listeners an opportunity to test run some of those techniques while it's fresh in their memory, let's wrap up for today and have you share your quote with us. My quote for today is by Corey Ten Boom, a Dutch watchmaker and later a writer. An interesting thing about her is that she was born April 15, 1892 and died April 15, 1983. Her quote, Worrying does not empty tomorrow of its troubles. It empties today of its strength. End of quote. Well, that is all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs at gmail.com, all one word. Or you can follow us on Instagram at catchingcurveballspodcast. That's catchingcurveballspodcast. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. We cannot wait to connect with you soon.